And today's going to be kind of a turning point here in the book of First Peter, and we're Peter's now going to start telling us how to apply some of the things that he's already been telling us in the first couple chapters about who we are. And I'm going to show you that as we step in today. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and we're going to be looking at the humble ambassador today. Now, as I was thinking about this this week, um, you know, I have only ever met one person from Argentina. There was this young man who came into our school when I was a senior in high school. He came in as a foreign exchange student from Argentina. And he came prancing into school, you know, with his, like, you know, deep olive skin and his thick, luscious hair and his exotic accent. And suddenly all the ladies wanted to talk to him and not to some of us. And so that didn't, that didn't go over real well, if you can imagine, um, in, in high school. And so, um, you know, he was, he was kind of arrogant and snotty. And at the same time, charming and witty. So it was like this, like you wanted to hate him, but you kind of couldn't. Like it was just this weird mix. And, and all he ever wanted to talk about was football this and football that. I'm like, dude, you're in America. It's soccer. Okay, just like get over yourself and come on in. And now, in my head, like I said, I know, I know no other Argentine people. I'm not sure if you have, that's how you say that, but we're going to go with it. <laughs> He's the only one I've ever met. And so in my, deep in my subconscious, I just know that every single one of them is just like him. All right? Now, obviously, that, that's probably not true, but, but I have no evidence to point me to anything different than that because he's the only one I've ever met. He is the lone example. He is the lone ambassador from Argentina in my life. And so he's the only lens I have to view that through. In this chapter, Peter's going to say that we as Christians, as the church, we function very much in the same way for all of the people around us who are not yet believers, who do not yet know Christ. We are the lens through which they see him. They come to know him, they come to know God, and they come to know Christianity through how we live and how they experience it on us as his ambassadors. So today, Peter's going to teach us how do we do that well, right? How do we live for Christ as a good ambassador of the kingdom of heaven? And so the big question over the text today is simply this, how am I repping Christ with my life? If you were to ask some people around you that question, how would they respond? How am I repping Christ with my life? What do they see about Jesus when they look at me? So with that in mind, let's jump into verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's pause there. The first thing that we see here that Peter tells us to be a good ambassador, number one, is to abstain from from sin. Abstain from sin. Now he starts with this word beloved, and I think that's on purpose because he's using that word to remind us of everything that he's already told us in the first couple chapters, right? That, that we are beloved children of God, that we are chosen, that we are saved, that we are adopted into his family, right? That's the identity that Peter has already established for us as the church, as Christians, and then he says, beloved, I urge you, and honestly, the Greek, it's more like I strongly urge you. This is a very emphatic um, statement that Peter's about to make here. 
And this is the point where we see this major shift in the letter of 1 Peter. The first couple chapters was all about who you are, and he's telling you, listen, you are loved, right, as we say here at Harvest often. From here on out, he's going to tell you, say, now this is how you live. Because of who you are, because of how you're loved, this is how you're supposed to live for me. And so, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Again, a reminder statement. He's already told us, listen, you're outsiders, right? You you don't belong here. You're not citizens of this world. You're citizens of heaven. And so don't expect that you're going to fit in all the time. Don't expect that things are always going to go your way because this is not, this is a temporary place for you. You are a citizen of the heaven, of the kingdom of heaven. And you're left on this earth on purpose to be ambassadors, to be representatives of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom. And that identity now controls how we live. That should control everything that we do and everything that we don't do. And that's what Peter's going to press on here. So he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, that phrase, passions of the flesh, is basically referring to sin. It's referring to to all the desires, all the things inside of us that want us to do the things that are contrary to God. The things that the world embraces, the things that the world says, yes, those are awesome, go for that. And God says, no, that's not of me. That's the passions of the flesh. He says, abstain. Stop. Cease. Have nothing to do with that because they wage war against your soul. Do you understand that sin in your life is a full-on attack to end you? That's the purpose of it. That's the reason Satan and, 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 and the world tempt us to sin is because they want to use it to wage war against us, to bring us down. And the word soul there doesn't just mean the spiritual side of you. It means the, the whole of who you are. Every part of you is being waged war against through sin. Sin is Satan's best shot to try to take you out, to kill you both physically and spiritually. That's the language that Peter's using here. And so he's saying, listen, this isn't some holier-than-thou power trip for Peter. He's like, this is for your benefit, right? This is for your good. If you really want to live a life full of love and full of grace and full of all that God has for you, it has to start with abstaining from sin. And he goes on then to say, keep your conduct honorable, which is really just a positive way to say what he just said before, right? That's another way to say, hey, don't sin, all right? He's, he's saying, listen, live godly lives, live holy, righteous lives before the Lord. Be honest, be generous, be kind, be sacrificial and loving and patient and forgiving and self-controlled and all those things that we read about that the Spirit does in us as we follow Christ. He says, live like that. So, look at that word so there, right? That's a connector word. He's about to give us another reason. He already gave us one reason, right? So, so that you don't die, right? Because <laughs> it's trying to wage war against you. But then also, so that when they speak against you, 
Now they is the world, right? Notice he says when, not if, right? Expect it. It is coming. It will happen. They're not going to like you. They're not going to agree with you. They're not always going to be on your side. So when they speak against you, when they slander you, when they malign you, when they gossip about you, when they, when they treat you this way, when they attack you for the things that they don't like about your faith, Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you, they can see your good deeds. Peter is exhorting us here to continue in godly character in the midst of sinful treatment. Listen, it's it's pretty easy to be godly when everything's rosy, right? When nobody's coming at you and everybody's nice and everybody's kind and playing good. But when they start to attack, when they start to come after you, then how do I respond? Peter says that's when it matters most. Because that's when they're looking at you. That's when their eyes are on you. Say, how, how, you really say you love Jesus, right? You really say you're all about forgiveness and grace. and all these things. Like, How are you going to respond when the heat's on? He says, let them see your good deeds so that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, if they see you living for Christ, even in the midst of the attack, then they will finally be ready to believe in Jesus when God finally visits them, when he finally calls them to salvation. They're going to be primed They're going to be primed and ready to believe because they have seen the gospel difference in you. So this whole idea of abstaining from sin and living good good conduct is not just for your benefit. It is for your benefit so so that you're not walking in the ways of Satan, so you're not being attacked. But also, this is a witnessing issue. This is our responsibility to the world around us that we live out the character of Christ on a daily basis so they see it in us. And the gospel becomes something that they actually desire or are open to or are are ready to receive when God presents that to them by the Holy Spirit. You know, when I was a kid, many of you already know this, but when I was a kid, I wanted um, nothing more than to be a pro basketball player, right? Like that was like number one on my list. And not just like any basketball player, but I wanted to be like Michael Jordan, right? Because he was the dude. Like he had it all. He had the swag. He had the moves. He had the, the money. He, like, he had all of it, right? And I wanted to be just like Michael because he made it look awesome. Unfortunately, God quickly revealed that was not my path. Um, <laughs> On many levels. And so I started looking at other dreams, right? So, so then I, at one point I wanted to be a psychologist. At one point I wanted to be a, a teacher because there were some people in my life who had an influence on me. I got to see their example living out those roles. And they did it in such a good way. They did it in such a, a, a remarkable way that it made me think, man, I, maybe I want to be like that. Right? Maybe I want some of what they've got because they're doing such a great job. And I bet that you had similar experiences like that. Maybe, maybe today you're a police officer or you're in the military because grandpa right, was the, the military guy and, and you want to be like him. 
Or, or maybe you're a mom today because you're, you looked at your mom and you're like, man, she was so loving and kind. And she was such a big influence in my life. Like, I just wanted to be a mom like her. Maybe some of you, it's a negative thing. It's like, I, I never want to own a business because my, my parents owned a business and it like ruled their life. And I don't want nothing to do with that. Whether it's positive or negative, you probably had somebody in your life where you saw an example of who they were and what they did and how it worked for them you're like, man, that's, that's what I want, or that's not what I want. Peter says that our lives have the same impact for the gospel for those around us. We either attract people to the gospel, or we repel people from the gospel by the way that we live out the gospel. Now listen, we can't save anybody. That's ultimately God's work. God has a call. God has to change the heart. Like We know all of that. I'm not trying to say any of that. But Peter is saying right here that the way we live matters for how it impacts those who see us. And so, ponder this for a moment. I want you to listen to the difference between these two questions. Or, I'm sorry, between these two statements. What if you heard somebody say, I want to be a Christian because of Chris, or because of Roger, or because of Jonathan. And that would be awesome, right? Like, like they saw something in your life that you're like, yeah, that's, that, that, that's, that's what I, that joy, that, that, that grace, that love for others, that, the way they live, I want that. Or, I want nothing to do with Christ because of Courtney. I can say her first because she's my wife. <laughs> because of Adam. Because of John. Unfortunately, I feel like we hear way too much of the latter statement rather than the former statement. Which statement would people make about your life? Your neighbors? The one right next to you who never mows their, their lawn correctly or at the right time. What would they say? Your coworker or your boss. That extended family member that, that doesn't know Jesus and they see you twice a year at a couple family functions. How would they, what would they, which of these statements would be true about you from their experiences with your life? How is your conduct repping Jesus? Let me ask it this way. Ask yourself this question. Does my lifestyle attract others to or repel others from the gospel? Again, you can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. We're not the Holy Spirit. We don't have that power. But we do have an impact. We do have an influence on how other people perceive our Savior and our faith. So that's the first thing, abstain from sin. But there's a second thing that Peter talks about here as ambassadors for Jesus Christ on the earth. Look at verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of of foolish people. 
Now, I know that the verses I just read could be like kicking a hornet's nest right now, okay? Like this past couple years in our country, these could be complete powder keg verses. But here's the deal at Harvest. We preach the Bible verse by verse. We don't skip verses even when they're hard. Amen? Okay, so that being said, <laughs> I'm going to do my best to give you the truth of what God's Word says here with some grace. So let's just all breathe for a second before I say this next part, okay? Point number two, ambassadors of Christ live in submission. He says it right there, the first two words of verse 13, be subject. Those words literally mean to come under, to submit. It's actually a military term in the Greek of submitting to a commanding officer. That's the mentality here when he says be subject. But notice here, after he says be subject, he adds this phrase, for the Lord's sake. That's key to understanding this whole section. He's saying here that this is because of God. This is his order. This is his idea. This is God's command to us as believers because God has ultimate authority, because God is sovereign over all things and all people. He tells us to be subject to every human institution. What? Like, has he seen some of the human institutions around here? Have he, has he seen what they're doing and, and what they're saying and how they're, like, has he, surely he did not understand what he was going, what was going to be coming. What? No, he did. Right? Is the Lord sovereign? Harvest? He knew. He knew better and he knows better than even we do exactly what every human institution is capable of. And yet, the words he used here was just that, every human institution. He, he could have said only certain ones, right? Just, just these, not these. He could have given us a checklist. He could have given us criteria of this versus this. But he, he doesn't. He just says every human institution. And the reason he says every human institution is because he understands what we need to understand that every human institution is ultimately under his authority. He's big enough to handle all of them. And so we can trust him to do that. Romans 13.1 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That God in his sovereignty is the one who puts them where they are and puts them in the power and the position that they have. And he tells us to be subject to them, and it says here, for his sake. Now, with that phrase, there also comes one exception. Because if we're being subject for the sake of the Lord, then it doesn't make any sense to be subject to human institutions that are opposed to the Lord. Right? Because it's for his sake. And we have an example of this back in Acts chapter 5, where the apostles are starting to preach the gospel, and the Jewish leaders bring them in. They say, listen, stop preaching the gospel. Stop talking about Jesus. You're messing things up. Like, stop it. And their response is, nope. 
<laughs> like, I know you're the authority, I know you're in charge, but in chapter, tw- in chapter 5, verse 29, it says, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So the one exception that we have to this commandment in Scripture is that when the human institution or when the human authority directly opposes God or opposes his word, then we are to obey God and not the human authority. But even though that exception exists, that is not the emphasis in Peter's teaching right here. You notice Peter didn't feel the need to put that little caveat in there at all. He just straight up gave it to us, be subject to every human institution. Because the main teaching here is, as much as possible, submit to human authorities that God has placed over us. That our first posture, our first attitude, our first response to authority should not be rebellion. Our first response should be submission. Rebellion should be a last resort if they are indeed opposing the word and the will of God. And then to make it even a little bit more clear, he says every human institution, including the emperor and his governors. All right, so let's just drill down on that for a second because obviously he's applying it directly here to government. And before we get down that road too quickly, let me just ask you this. Do you understand? Do you remember? I told you this at the beginning, but do you remember who is probably most likely who the emperor is when Peter is writing these exact words, it's the Roman Emperor Nero, who historians have noted is one of the most brutal dictators of all time. Right? He, he murdered his own mother and his first wife because he was afraid they were going to push him out of power. Which would really make you second guess being his second wife. Right? Like... He set fire to his own capital city and burned it so that he could then rebuild the structures in his own name and in his own legacy. And then when people got upset about it, he turned around and blamed it on the Christians and started an empire-wide persecution of Christianity, which eventually led to the assassination, or not not the assassination, but the the crucifixion or the killing of the Apostle Paul at the hands of Nero himself. Most likely. We don't have that perfectly documented, but that seems to be the case. So when Peter is writing, be subject to the emperor, this is who he's talking about. Can you imagine? And yet, God says, be subject to the emperor and his governors, all levels of government, without qualification for who is in the office. Because whoever's there, God put there. And worse yet, for us as Americans, as we read this, you understand that Peter's original audience, they got no vote on who was in office. Right? They didn't get a say in who the emperor was or the governors were. And yet, Peter still says, be subject to the authorities. So clearly... So the reason he says that is because, it says right here in the text, to the emperors and the governors, because they serve a purpose in our society. It is to punish evil and praise good. And some of you are like, exactly, Micah. I've been watching. They're not doing that. 
They're not punishing evil. They're letting evil go. They're not praising good. They're messing up. So that's, that's that. I'm done. I'm out. I think Nero was too, just to clarify, if you read a little bit of history. But what God says is they're accountable to me for that, not to you. I put them in authority. I'm over them. They're here to do my work to, to punish evil and praise good. If they're messing that up, I'll take care of them. You do what I'm telling you to do, which is be subject to the human authorities put over us. So clearly, God's calling here to submit to governmental authorities is not based on the quality of the job that they're doing, on our agreement or disagreement with their methods or policies, or whether or not we voted for them. It's because they are his tools accomplishing his purposes, and so we submit for his sake. Peter drives it home even a little bit more, if that wasn't strong enough already, when he says, for this is the will of God. So in other words, failure to do this opposes God's will and therefore puts us in the category of sinning against the Lord. And he goes on to say, by doing good, by submitting to authority, by setting an example of, I trust God, no matter what human is in power, I trust the Lord more, and so I'm willing to do what he's called me to do, right? Doing good for society, doing good for people around me, that it will silence the ignorance of foolish people. I really like that statement. <laughs> right? That this is the opportunity that we have to take the ammunition away from those who would oppose God, who would oppose the gospel, who would oppose the church, that by when we follow God's law, when we follow the authorities he's put in place, and we do it in a way that is so trusting of the Lord and so loving and gracious towards those who don't know him, that it takes away all their ammunition when they want to come at us and attack us and call us out for the ways that we are not like them and not helping society and not submitting and not following those in authority. You see, God's will is to use our submission to human authority as a testimony of the goodness and the ultimate glorifying of His authority. We don't submit because of them. We submit because of him. Because he's in control. And we trust him and we trust his word. Now, I'm going to try to maybe help apply this a little bit for us. Because as sticky as this topic is right now in our culture, that means that this word from the Lord is even more important and timely for us as Christians right now. This is what we need. So, I'm not sure if you've noticed lately or not, but there, there, tends, there seems to be a, a, a decent group of people who do not like our current president. Anybody notice that? Is that, like, is that registering on anybody else's radar right now? And there's equally another group of people who didn't like our last president. Right? Can we, can we agree with that? Like, there's plenty on both sides of that coin. And both sides seem quite motivated and comfortable making their negative opinions known. 
And here's the thing. Disagreement is one thing, right? Our government system, our society is set up where disagreement has an important part in government. Disagreements need to be voiced. They need to be spoken because that's the way democracy works. Two sides working to come up with the majority, right? Like this is, it's important. So I'm not saying don't disagree. I'm not saying don't even voice disagreements. But disagreement is different than being disrespectful, than being demeaning, or even deceitfully damaging the authority that God has put in place. When we do that, we're not honoring him and we're not glorifying him. By all means, voice your disagreements civilly. Stand against unbiblical policies and practices. Vote your conscience. Do all of those things. Be good citizens. Do all of those things. But God also says, after you do those things, be subject to the authority that he put in place. But Micah, that's... They're not really supposed to be there because something happened and something with voting and I don't, what, like, they're not the real one. No matter what, if humans messed it up, guess what? God didn't. No matter how it might have got messed up on the voting and the rig, whatever you think that plays out to be, fine. But God still knew what was going to happen and how it was going to play out and he allowed this person to be the one in office, in authority for now. And so this still applies. So, how you doing with that? How you doing with the be subject to human authority? You know, another way, and I don't really want to go here, but I'm going to drive it just a little bit deeper. If you haven't got your toes stepped on yet, this will probably get you there. This whole past year and a half, two years of pandemic have been a case study on how to respond to authority, right? At every level. And many Christians have been very vocal and emphatic that they feel that some of the policies and some of the orders that have been placed on us have opposed God, have opposed his word, have opposed his church, and have even been labeled in many circles as religious persecution. And I'll say from my perspective, and this, I'm just one, one perspective, but I can see that there are certainly some instances of that. When we have certain areas of our country where churches are not allowed to meet, while other businesses of like number and size are allowed, that is a singling out of the church. When we have pastors who are being put in jail for holding services while other groups are allowed to have their meetings without any pushback, that's a singling out of God's church, and that is an opposition to his worship, and that's a problem. And that has happened. But I think that's been the minority. Most of the places in our country, it hasn't been that. The government has asked churches to adhere to the same set of requirements and the same set of policies as the other businesses around them. Not a different set, the same set. And ask them to limit certain things and to, to, to work in certain ways because of this unprecedented health risk in our country. 
And yet still many Christians complained that they had no authority to do that because of the separation of church and state, because of the First Amendment, because of religious liberty. And so the question, I think, for us is, was that indeed a valid and necessary time for us to exercise the exception to this rule? Was that a valid time for us to say, no, this is opposing God, opposing his word, so we need to rebel against this. We need to stand against this. And I believe, our elders believe, if we've talked about it, that the answer lies in this question. Is your opposition to that based on a constitutional argument or on a biblical argument? Because those are different. Right? Constitutional arguments are good, and they have a place, and they're fine. In our democracy, we should discuss the Constitution. We should discuss what rules apply to our country. That is a good and right conversation to be having. But as Christians, constitutional arguments are not primary. Biblical arguments are primary. I love the Constitution. I was a history teacher for years. I'm all about it. But listen, that is secondary to God's Word. So the first thing we have to apply is this. And then we can go into the other. We must submit and hold fast to God's Word first and the Constitution second. So my response to laws and policies should be more focused on how it represents God to the world around me than how it aligns with my political views and ideas. And so I think the question over this section here is this, does my attitude towards authority evidence a submission to the ultimate authority of God? As other people see me and how my, my posture, my attitude, how I respond to the human authority that God has put in place, is that giving a good testimony of who God is and God's ultimate authority over all things? Because that's the most important part in our response. So abstain from sin, live in submission, and if you could possibly handle one more thing, Peter gives us one more. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free. Using, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The last point is this, freely serve. To be ambassadors of God, we need to freely serve at God's command. It starts off there in verse 16. It says, live as people who are free. Now, we love that word, right? Like, we love that word in our culture, in our country, in our society. Like, free is big time. And I did a quick, just a quick Google search. There are 13 different definitions for the word free in the dictionary, right? But the main idea of freedom, as we think about it in our country, really comes down to two ideas that actually date all the way back to Aristotle in the Greek culture when he defined freedom in two parts, personal and public, right? Personal freedom he defined as to live as one wishes, right? To do what I want to do, to live the way I want to live. That's personal freedom as Aristotle defined it, and that tends to be the way we think about it in 
America. The second way, the public definition, is to rule and be ruled in turn. So really the idea of democracy, right? That we get a voice in how we, in how we rule, and then we submit to the rule that is over us as a part of citizens in a free democracy, a free government system. So this is the idea of freedom as Aristotle lays out, and that's, the way, that's how America was basically built in functions in terms of freedom. But what I've noticed is that as individuals, as Americans, we tend to favor the second idea of freedom, the I get to vote and then I'll submit to the government idea, until our guy doesn't get in office. And then we want to go back to the first definition, right? Like, I'm a free person, I'll do what I want to do, you can't tell me, like, this is a free country. Amen? Anybody, right? Like, please don't leave me up here. But here's the reality, friends. To live as I choose, to live the way I want to live, is actually not freedom at all. To live the way I want to live is actually enslavement to the flesh that lives within me. If it's always about my ideas and my desires and my wants, and then I'm actually just feeding this sinful side of me and I'm being enslaved to me. The biblical definition for freedom is different. The Bible tells us that there is no true freedom apart from God. There is no such thing as true freedom apart from Jesus Christ. Biblical freedom is not free to do whatever you want. Biblical freedom is being freed from one master to another. It's being freed from sin to be a slave of God. That's biblical freedom. That's really central to the gospel, right? The gospel says that we're all sinners. We're all messed up. We're all in rebellion against God because we're doing our own thing. Because we're trying to live free according to our own ideas and our own hearts. And so therefore we are in rebellion against God. And the only way that gets fixed is by a Savior coming and rescuing us out of that broken, sinful heart. And that selfish desire of me first freedom. And so Jesus came. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Then he went to the cross to die for our sins. To pay the price so that we could be cleaned, so we could be freed from that. And he rose three days later from death to offer us this freedom. If we'll believe in Jesus, that he will free us from this slavery of sin and he will give us new life and freedom in Christ as servants of the living God. That's biblical freedom. Listen to Romans 6 here. It says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." Another way to say that would be to become servants of God. So we're freed from the slavery of sin to be servants of God. We are freed from eternal death to eternal life. Later on in chapter 6, Romans it says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit, that, uh, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it ends, and it, and its end, eternal 
life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's freedom. It's being in and under the authority of God. You see, the Bible's emphasis is always on spiritual freedom over physical freedom. Jesus, you see this really clearly in Jesus' teaching back in John chapter 8. He's talking to some Jewish disciples and some people there. And he says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you. But they answered him. Look at their answer. We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. In other words, they're saying, listen, we're Jewish. Like, we're not enslaved. Like, we're free people. They're talking about their physical freedom. How is it that you say you will become free? Look at Jesus' answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He's not talking about physical freedom. He's talking about spiritual freedom. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, not physically free, spiritually free, if the son sets you spiritually free, you will be free indeed. That's what matters most. Another verse, 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Were you a slave? Were you a servant? Then do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Right? If you can buy your freedom, great, go for it. For he who has called you in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. So you might be physically in, in slavery, but you are spiritually free in Jesus Christ. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You might be free physically, but when you come to Jesus, you are a servant of God. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Here it is. So brothers, in whatever condition, in whatever condition each of you was called, there let him remain with God. He's saying, listen, I'm not really that concerned about your physical freedom, which is shocking to us as Americans. But that's his point. Listen, whether you're a servant, great, be a servant. If you're free, great, be free. But the main thing is, are you spiritually free in Jesus Christ? That's Paul's point. Another one, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We have that same idea like three or four times in Scripture. I didn't want to read them all for you this morning. He's like, there's no slave or free. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your physical freedom is. It matters, are you in Christ? So freedom in the Bible is much more about spiritual freedom than physical freedom. And we can't confuse those two, right? We can't confuse our blessing of freedom and our desire for physical freedom with the Bible's promise and teaching on spiritual freedom. Because listen, there's very likely going to come a day where those two freedoms will no longer be in alignment. And you're going to have to make a choice, which is more important to you, your physical freedom or your spiritual freedom. And if and when that day comes, Peter and Paul and God are telling you the most important thing is your spiritual freedom. So if that's the case, how do we live free? How do we truly live spiritually free in Christ? He tells us right here, he says, don't cover up for evil, but serve God. 
Freedom does not mean that we are free to do, do whatever we want. It's not what freedom is. Not biblical freedom. We are free to do what is right under the authority of God. We are his servants. We are his slaves now. And so Peter says, don't cover up for evil. When we use our freedom to cover up for evil, that's actually an abuse of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. What does he mean when he says cover up for evil? What does that look like? Well, it could be several things. It could be covering up for the evil of personal sin. Some people think when they get saved and they come to Jesus that that's now a license to sin, right? Like, I'm covered in grace. Jesus died for all my sins, past, present, future. I'm good. I'm with Jesus, so I can do whatever I want now. Nope. And if you have that mentality about sin, then you don't really know Jesus. You don't really know the one who loved you enough to die to cover that. And you wouldn't want to continue in it one day longer if you didn't have to. So it could be covering up personal sin. It could, be, uh, it could mean don't cover up for the evil of rebellion against authority, like he just talked about, right? Again, I've heard some people like, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a citizen of this world. I'm a citizen of, I'm a citizen of heaven, right? I'm a citizen of, of God, of his kingdom. So I don't have to listen to anybody down here. All I have to do is listen to Jesus. The Bible says otherwise. So covering up prideful rebellion is not freedom. He also says don't cover, or another example could be don't cover for the evil of disregarding or mistreating others. My freedom in Christ doesn't allow me to just do whatever I want when it has a negative impact on others around me. I'm freed up to love and to serve others. And so when I make choices for my individual life, but I know that that's going to hurt or tender somebody else, that's a bad use of freedom. And that's covering up an evil, prideful heart in me that says, me first, everybody else, fend for yourself. We are free only under God's perfect authority to serve and honor him with all that we do. And again, just so you think, don't think I'm making this up, let me give you a couple more verses that define freedom not as do whatever you want to do, but as service to God and to others. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for sin, for yourself, but through love serve one another. We have freedom so we can love and serve God and others, not ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. In other words, I'm free to do whatever I want, but not all things are good and right. He says, let no one seek his own good. Don't just do what feels good to you, but seek the good of his neighbor. Use your freedom to serve your neighbor, not just yourself. 1 Corinthians 9.19 For though I am free from all, Paul says, I got freedom. I'm, I'm not slave to any man, but I have made myself a servant to all 
that I might win more of them. We submit our freedom to serve God and to serve others because He is the King and because we are servants. It's about His name, not our name. It's about Him, not us. As I was thinking on this, I had this idea. I think some Christians view our freedom in Christ kind of like diplomatic immunity. You familiar with that term? Have you heard that before? Right? If you've ever watched any cop show, you've probably heard of that before. It was like, throw that one in there, right? But it's a real thing. Diplomatic immunity is basically that diplomats, ambassadors from other countries, that they are considered not susceptible to lawsuit or prosecution under that country's law. So if they break the law, if they do something wrong, they're basically exempt from prosecution or from the law of the country that they are in as an ambassador. They get a free pass, in other words, right? They're free to do whatever they want without consequence from that because they're from another country. They're underneath the laws of a different country, not the one they're living in. But the catch is that if they do something wrong, if they do break a law or something like that, they bring shame and dishonor on their country of origin. They bring shame and dishonor on the name of their country, on the name of the leader that they're there representing. The whole reason that the, the, that the, the diplomat or the ambassador is there is because their whole purpose is to serve their leader with their freedom in that country. As ambassadors of Christ, we too have immunity from the punishment of sin because Jesus already paid for it. He paid for all of our sin on the cross. We're free from the the payment of all of that. But, even though we're immune to the punishment, we still represent Christ here on this earth with every breath that we take. So in no way is our freedom a license to do whatever we want, personally or publicly. When we sin, when we rebel against authority, when we hurt others in order to please ourselves, we are abusing the freedom and we're bringing shame and dishonor to the name of Christ. We're not honoring or serving our God We're honoring and serving ourselves. And that's not a good ambassador. So again, let me ask you this question. Do do I use my freedom to serve me or God? Which is it for you? Do you you use the freedom that you have in Christ? Do you use the freedom that you have in God's word and and in in the family of God to serve yourself, to serve your wants, your desires, or to serve the Lord. Peter finishes this whole section here. Look at verse 17. With this, he kind of gives like this summary statement, right? This is like the, the synopsis, like here's your whole role, right? Here's how to be an ambassador in shorthand. Honor everyone because they're made in his image. Love the brotherhood because they are his family. Fear God because he alone is the sovereign king. But honor the emperor because he is God's instrument. 
That's how we live out the life of an ambassador for Christ. So again, I'll ask you how, ask yourself this, how am I repping Christ with my life? What does my conduct say to others? What does my attitude say? What does my freedom say? All of our lives, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life is, a, is speaking a testimony of who Christ is to everyone around you. What are they hearing? What are they seeing in you? What is your life saying about Jesus? Stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, we... Lord, this is a hard... It's a hard word to hear this morning. It's a hard word for me to read and study this week. But God, we know that we're here because you, Heavenly Father, are a great and sovereign God. And that we are merely your servant ambassadors. And so God, we are praying, we're asking right now, Lord, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us when we rep you poorly to a lost and dying world around us. Lord, use your Holy Spirit to come and to correct us, to equip us to be worthy ambassadors of Christ. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need you. We need your help. Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Do a fresh thing today. Lord, bring us to a place where we fully surrender to you, God. We surrender to the fact that you are God and we are not. We surrender that you are king and we are servants. And we will simply do what you've called us to do. Pray all this in Christ's name.